This morning marks the final study in our Outlaw Church series. And if you've been with us through Galatians, you've noticed that most Sundays, I'll kind of start with a big idea. And then we'll get into the text to kind of substantiate the big idea. This morning, the last study, we're going to totally reverse the process. We're just going to work through the text. We're going to finish the text, finish chapter 6, finish Paul's letter to the Galatians, strong and with excellence. And then we're going to close with kind of a big final idea uh, that I feel the Lord wants us to communicate. So we're in verse 10 of chapter 6, Paul's letter to a collection of churches in a region known as Galatia. He says, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now, admittedly, the way that this verse is presented kind of leads to the idea that Paul is setting up here a concluding thought. You've heard me say this before, uh, that anytime you run across a therefore, ask what is it therefore, because most of the time it's a, a, a kind of a key word that means that whatever we've been discussing is now about to reach a conclusion. That's not what's happening here. As, as a matter of fact, this verse would be better translated something like this. As we have therefore opportunity, and this word opportunity, it means do measure. Let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are, are of the household of faith. Paul's exhortation here is for every believer in proximity to the measure of grace they have received, to reciprocate that grace, as we've looked at, through love, through charity, through goodness, to all. He says, do good. Do good. Believer and unbeliever alike. Once again, Paul is hammering home the inescapable reality that grace received will manifest in a grace that is demonstrated. The easiest way to tell if someone doesn't get grace, if the light bulb has not gone off, is to look at their life and see if they're demonstrating grace. If they're loving those around them. It's a tale. And note, Paul's clear here, right? That this doing good, we're to do to all. And that's important. You know, constantly combating the tendencies of legalism. It would be easy for the legalist to take the exhortation to do good, to show grace, but to warp it in this sense. I'll show grace to those who deserve it or those who have earned it or those that are doing the things to warrant it or merit it, which totally erodes the whole purpose of grace itself. It's not something I earn. It's not something I deserve. It's something that's demonstrated. Paul's going out of his way to combat the legalist by making sure we understand this reciprocation of doing good initiated by grace and all the good that God has done to us is not just limited to those we perceive to be deserving, but that we're to do good to all regardless. So often in our marriages, we resist doing good to the other party. Why? Because they're not doing good to us. Or we resist doing good. Why? Because they're not showing things. They're not meeting me halfway. And yet the exhortation is to not look at the other person and to just walk in grace and allow that to manifest in and through our lives. You can come up 
with all kinds of reasons why you shouldn't do good to someone else. I can give you one reason you should. While you didn't deserve it, Jesus died on the cross for you. It's hard to argue. Verse 11. See with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. Now, there are three ways that this particular statement can be viewed. First, it it may very well be that Paul is kind of here at the end of his letter apologizing for like the gigantic letters that he's kind of used throughout the entire letter, that Paul was writing this letter to the Galatians himself. And because of his poor eyesight, he's referenced that earlier uh, in the letter itself, that because of his poor eyesight, he wrote with large script. And at the end here, he's kind of apologizing. Listen, I know this letter. It was a mess. My eyes are bad. Sorry. Just get over it. There's another way to look at it. Secondly, This notation could have been Paul's way of letting the Galatians know that while the letter had been largely dictated by Paul and scribed by someone else, an assistant, that at this juncture, he's going to provide this kind of closing thought in his own hand. And that's very possible that Paul had one of his traveling companions pull out, pull out parchment and pen, and Paul is kind of flowing with thought. They're writing it down. He's dictating, they're scribing this particular letter. But now at the end, he has some things he wants to say. So he's like, get out of the way, give me the pen. And now he's like, I'm sorry, this is gonna be large letters, but I'm writing it now. That, that's also entirely possible. First two could absolutely be the reason. I kind of gravitate towards the third explanation. And that's, Paul wrote the letter. And that here at the end, his change in in font size, so to speak, was designed and intending to add greater emphasis now to what he's about to say. That he's been writing, and now he's struck with this last thought he wants to hammer home. And so what does he do? If you're typing out an email and there's something you want to make sure someone gets, what do you do? Caps. Ba-boom. I've been speaking normally, now I'm yelling, which, by the way, is what caps intends to communicate. I, I tell my mom all the time, you're, why are you always yelling at me in text messaging? Caps. Could be that, that the increase in font size is like caps or bolding his statement here kind of letting you know what I'm about to communicate is very, very important. You might have ignored me in this entire letter, but what I'm about to say is crucial. It's critical. Matt Chandler commented as to the importance of this reality when he said, quote, to think you're right about eternal matters only to be wrong is a scary thing. Verse 12, as many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Now, we're not gonna unpack and, and, and kind of rehash the significance of circumcision. You can go back to previous studies and kind of dig into it. This is 
If you're joining us this morning, it's the final study, so we're not going to repeat everything that we've looked at up until now, except for this. Don't forget why Paul's writing the letter to begin with. He is either in Corinth or he's in Athens. He catches word that these churches in Galatia that he had planted that false teachers had come from Jerusalem to these teachers and they were preaching a gospel distortion. Instead of grace and grace alone, these false teachers had come in and said, it's grace and do these things. Or, or grace, but, but don't do these things. Legalism or grace so you can do anything. Regardless, they're presenting a gospel that Paul says in chapter one isn't a gospel. It's not good news. And he, he has to write, he has to address, he can't wait to get back to Galatia. This letter is Paul combating these false teachers. And his conclusion here, Paul is wanting to make sure that before he places the final period, that he peels back the veil concerning the motivations of these false teachers. Like what's really going on behind these people who are peddling legalism? Like what's the real motivation here? Because if you understand what's really motivating these people, you'll reject it. It's Paul's thesis here. And how would Paul know the motivation of these religious legalists? <laughs> Paul had been one for years. Paul could speak to their motivations because he had walked in their shoes. He had proposed the same ideas on steroids. Paul understood legalism. He understood religious moralism. He understood religiosity because he had been steeped in it until he encountered Jesus. And then it changed everything. And explaining why these false teachers were seeking to, quote, compel the Gentiles to be circumcised. Paul first points out here that, quote, they desire to make a good showing in the flesh so that they might be able to, quote, boast in your flesh. Because their activities, what they were doing for God, were their way of measuring their own godliness. The number of these Galatians that these false teachers were able to convince to be circumcised, their converts, only served to add to their own sense of self-accomplishment and moralism. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying they're trying to get you to be circumcised because they take pride in getting you to be circumcised. It's kind of a number thing. It's like every night these false teachers would powwow and be like, hey man, how many Gentiles did you get to be circumcised today? Oh man, I got 10. I got 15. Man, I only got two. Well, you're worse than I, like it was a number, it, it was moralism and numbers. Now you might think that's kind of ridiculous and it is. And yet, don't we see the same warped mentality permeate the church today in our approach to evangelism? Instead of inviting people to church or sharing your faith as just a natural manifestation of God's grace, that you came here Boom, you were hit with God's grace. It was a grace place. And now you just want other people 
to experience the same thing that you've experienced, that Jesus met you here, the word of God's working in your heart, the worship is great. Like this is, you found a community and instead of just going out and just this natural organic manifestation of inviting people or sharing your faith, don't we often present both reaching out and inviting people to church or seeing how many people you can get saved to be a duty or even worse, a competition. Like it's, it's what I would kind of call the gold sticker merit badge mentality. Like we introduce this warped sense of legalism to our children, don't we? How many, how many friends can you bring to vacation Bible school? If you bring three, you get a sticker. If you bring four, you get a toy. If you bring 50, we'll make you pastor. You know, like, <laughs> like we play this same game. And this is what Paul's saying. He's saying what they're doing is desiring to make a good showing in their own flesh. They're compelling you to be circumcised so that they can boast in your flesh. Note, Paul says in pursuit of converts to boost their own sense of moral standing, these would compel you. This word compel, it's a nasty word, really. Like there's no love, there's no heart, there's no friendship involved. It literally means to force or to constrain or to drive. There's no... Love, this is conniving, it's selfishly motivated, and this is their motivation. Also notice, Paul says that these false teachers were seeking to compel the Gentiles to be circumcised so that, quote, they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. Keep in mind, as long as Christianity in the first century, so we're in the first century Roman world when this is being written, as long as Christianity was viewed by Rome as being nothing more than just the sect of Judaism. Christianity, the worship of Jesus, it would be legal and would avoid undue scrutiny. Sadly, to ensure that remained, blending law and grace was an easier path for the legalist because it didn't rock the boat didn't rock the boat with Rome. And if you could blend legalism and grace, it wouldn't rock the boat with Jerusalem, the religious establishment. If you could just add a little law with grace, we could all get along, was kind of the motivation of these false teachers because they didn't want the full brunt of what the cross signified, of what it meant, of the implications. The brutal truth, especially and the Southern Bible Belt is that grace, period, the true gospel, is a scandalous idea. Finally, Paul highlights the hypocrisy in such an approach by saying, look at it, for not even those who are circumcised keep the law. Understand, these grace and do these things or grace but don't do these things, gospel distortions, were employed by these false teachers because it could be tailor-fitted to the lifestyle of the false teacher peddling them. Do you get that? Like, if we're to be honest, 
These distortions are in actuality this. It's grace and do the things I'm doing, or it's grace, but don't do the things I'm not actually interested in doing. It's this form of morality, which allows the teacher to easily then model the standard he preaches in his own life. We all get that the life of the pastor has to fit the message he's proclaiming. Nothing will kill a ministry faster than if the pastor's viewed as a hypocrite. Preaching one thing, living a different way, which means the pastor can tailor a message and warp a gospel to make sure he can live it. This is what happens. Like on the other extreme, by the way, this also explains the motivation behind the grace so I can do anything gospel distortion. If a standard for morality is removed altogether, the teacher then possesses the same license to live however he wants without fear of accusal or accountability for his own moral behaviors or lifestyle choices because it's just grace, man. It's a shame. For the Hebrew, for the Jew, for these Judaizers, these false teachers, circumcision, obeying the feasts, adherence to the dietary restrictions of the law, they were easy to ask the Gentiles because it required nothing of them, right? They were trying to get the Gentiles to be circumcised. Not a big deal for the Jew, why? Eighth day, that procedure took place, already done. Additionally, like they're able to, uh, to, to, to force the obeying a feast. Not a big deal because I've been obeying these things like since I was a kid, my whole culture's kind of revolving around it. Not a big deal for me. Dietary restrictions, I've grown up eating kosher. Thus my palate is kind of centered on eating kosher. Like easy for these Jews to be like, you need to be circumcised and you need to obey uh, the feasts. And the, and the dietary restrictions, you Gentiles, right? Why? Because that was easy for them to do. They were already doing it. Like, like, let me apply how this works itself out in our world. Like if you grew up in a religious culture where the consumption of alcohol, we're not talking about drunkenness, but enjoying a beer with dinner or a glass of wine, what have you, was strictly prohibited, where you grew up in an environment where a drop of alcohol was, was sin, okay? This position. Then it's really easy for you to require the complete abstinence of others. You never had a drop of alcohol. Something you've never had, something that's never been part of your life, something that you've never, you've never had a palate for. So it's easy to say, everyone else, needs to adhere to the same principle. I think beer's disgusting, so that's what we're gonna be doing. How about this? And this is true, like this is a truth. If you're white, and let's say, and I'll speak personally, you, you lack rhythm. Like you can't dance then it's really, really easy for you to then foster a religious culture and a spiritual experience where hand clapping and dancing are frowned upon in the church. Why? 
because you can't clap on beat, so that's embarrassing, and you can't dance, which is also embarrassing. So because you can't do those two, you tell everyone else it's outlawed. You think I'm kidding. You can go back into Puritanism, and then you started to have the inclusion of African slaves coming to Christ who, by the way, can clap on beat and can dance, and they're wanting to incorporate this into their religious experience, and these white Puritans are like, I can't do that, so no one can do that. Literally, that happened. If you want to trace why we have black churches and white churches, it's really because white people can't dance and are jealous. We don't, I'm serious, we don't encourage you to clap on a Sunday. We don't tell you you can't clap. Listen, you don't clap during worship. That's a natural manifestation. That's cool. But we don't encourage you to do that because we like to stay on rhythm. And most of you ain't got it. How about this? If it's been ingrained into your Christian psyche, like since you were a kid, Right? That Sunday morning, church, it required your best. You know, you had that one suit, the one set of ridiculous suspenders and bow tie that your mom forced you to wear every Sunday. Like, no one dresses like that in real life, but on Sunday, because it's, it's God's best, you need to do it. And that's just how you grew up. So you're just accustomed to wearing a suit and a tie, right? It's easy to then tell everyone else that they also have to do the same thing. Like one of the things that that, that was so radical about Calvary Chapel is that in the late 60s, early 70s, Pastor Chuck, who came out of denominationalism, who wore, by the way, a suit and tie behind the pulpit, didn't impose that on anyone. He allowed hippies to just come to church however they were to experience God's grace. If you want to wear a suit and tie, go for it. You're going to be hot and uncomfortable, but that's fine. But it becomes legalistic when you impose it on others. What's happening here, and Paul points to this motivation. Like they're pushing these things, why? Because it's easy for them. Note, Paul He's clear. The hypocrisy behind this approach rests in a little fact they overlooked. And that's that requiring obedience to any part of the law dictates obedience to every part of the law. The law is a Pandora's box. Sadly, the legalist refuses to carry out their legalism beyond their own proclivities. Why? Because if they did, they themselves would eventually stand under the same weight of moral condemnation and conviction. Anytime that you feel legalism's appeal to your flesh, working its way up, never forget you really only have one of two options. One of two options. There's not a third. You are either under all of the law or you're always under God's amazing grace. You choose. Verse 14. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. 
For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. Let's unpack what Paul's saying. First, he's clear, right? Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails. And that word avails, it means has the power to do anything. Neither the things you do for God or the things you refrain from doing for God have any bearing on your eternal justification before God, the maintaining of this newfound righteous position, or your practical ability to develop a life pleasing to God. You can't do anything either way. It's out of your hands. The only thing, Paul says, that has the power to make you into a new creation is to be simply found, as Paul says, in Christ Jesus. Now, the idea behind this word creation, a new creation, the word creation, it it literally means founding. What Paul means in using this term is that because of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, and more specifically, the work Jesus did on the cross, the work he accomplished, you have now been given a new foundation. The law could never provide a new creation, a new foundation. The man of sin has been done away with. You are now found on right footing before God apart from your involvement. That's what Paul's saying. He continues, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul here is reiterating the idea that as a new creation with new footing, you don't need anything from this world. You don't need a thing. Because of the new identity that you've been granted in Christ on account that you've been crucified with Christ, in the sense that you've identified yourself with his work of atonement. You no longer need anything the world promises it will provide, but never makes good. The world, it's not my home. I belong to Jesus. I am a citizen of heaven. My identity, my purpose, my meaning, my love, my joy, my peace is independent of anything this world has to offer. It's found in heaven, and more specifically, Jesus. I'm not bound by this world any longer. And since this is my new reality, God forbid that you or I or any of us should boast in or literally find glory in anything except what? The cross of Jesus. Because none of that is possible apart from the cross. You know, legalism does something sneaky. Legalism works in our lives and it likes to get us to boast or to take glory in anything other than the cross. Like things begin working well with our marriage, you know? And what happens? We begin feeling like we've done something. We begin to glory in the therapist or the steps we've taken or this or that. How silly when none of it's possible apart from Jesus' atoning work on the cross of Calvary. We should boast concerning anything good in our lives and nothing but Jesus, especially not ourselves. If there's more of me, there's more of a mess. Always. It's a truth of the Adams household. More of Zach, more problems. More of Jesus, that's what we need. And so he says, God forbid 
under the weight of what Jesus did on the cross and the implications, God forbid I boast in anything else, especially myself. Verse 16, and as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. And as many walk according to this rule. Now that seems a little interesting and a whole book about grace and we're not you know, outlaw. Now there's a rule, right? The word rule, it just means in the Greek, straight line. Like Paul's point is that this new life founded in Jesus is the only way that God is asking his people, which, which he refers to as the Israel of God to live. If you walk according to the straight line of grace, you'll be good. The legalism tries to reform the flesh. Regeneration is the only mechanism by which a human heart, your heart, is transformed. Walk in grace. Walk in the straight line of grace. Avoid the crooked nature of the law. Paul says the result of you walking according to this rule is that peace and mercy will be upon you. As noted in our first few studies, the only way to peace with God is to first experience the grace of God. You can never have peace until you first experience grace. Legalism, there's no peace in legalism because you never know if you've done enough, if you've been good enough. If it's about you, if it's about your standing, you'll never know. But if it's about Jesus and what he's done, well, that's permanent. I find peace with God through the grace of God. It's the only way. Interestingly enough, Paul mentions here, for the first time in his letter, he introduces a new word, the idea of mercy. If grace is God giving us the things we don't deserve, Mercy can be defined as God not giving us the things we do. Like it's God's mercy, I don't go to hell because I deserve that. It's his grace that I made an, a son and an heir of promise. Unpacking and chewing on this word mercy, it literally means to change the subject, which has really radical implications. In the face of all of those things, that might discredit us from being the recipients of God's amazing grace. When, when, when Satan beats his condemnation drum, when the accuser is there telling God all of the reasons that you are unworthy, and that moment in his abundant mercy, you know what God does? He changes the subject. Oh, you have, you have all that to say? Well, you know what, let's change the subject to the cross, his mercy. Verse 17, from now on, let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Now, thank you, Paul, for putting this at the end. Right in the middle of a flow of thought, you gotta drop this idea. What does Paul mean when he says the marks of the Lord Jesus? In the Greek, this word marks is stigma. According to Roman Catholic persuasion, the idea of a stigmata occurs when a person supernaturally bears in their flesh the wounds of Christ. The supernatural thing takes place. Paul is not mentioning or referencing that idea at all. That has nothing to do with what he's referring to. The idea of 
quote, bearing in my body the marks of, it wasn't a foreign idea to Paul's Galatian audience. And keep it in context. In Roman society, it was commonplace for a person to be physically branded, to get a tattoo of someone that you had sworn your complete allegiance to follow. Like, like there were three cultural institutions that this bearing in like a mark of was significant. In pagan worship, this was commonplace. If you were in the military, this was a practice. If you had, had sworn allegiance to a commander, then you would get a brand. You see that in our own armed forces, guys getting tattoos for, for different branches of the military, showing their allegiance. In slave culture, branding was customary. Sometimes it was forced, but in a lot of instances, it was voluntary. When you were of your own freedom, choosing to remain as a servant in the household of a kind and benevolent master, thus you would be branded with their name. I am property. I belong to that person. You see, this was a cultural norm. Now, it may be that Paul is pointing to his physical scars, many of which you should note he had received when he originally took the gospel into Galatia as a form of like honor, a badge of honor, a way that he showed his loyalty to Jesus. Don't forget, and I come to you, he had been taken out and stoned and left as if he were dead. Like Paul bore physical scars of taking the gospel to Galatia. So it might be that he's saying, I bear in my body the marks of my loyalty. You can see it. I've been loyal. Could also be, and more likely, that Paul is simply playing off a common cultural practice, this idea of, of marking, to make it clear, to illustrate a point. And what point is that? That he was taking a measure of pride and the fact that he completely surrendered his life to the allegiance of not a pagan God, but the true God, Jesus. That he has sworn his allegiance to a different kingdom and a different commander, a king named Jesus, a master he had chosen to give his life in the servitude of. Verse 18, we close the book by reading, Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Paul began his letter with grace. Now he ends his letter with grace. Now I told you up front, we're going to work through the text and then we're going to kind of close with a big idea. And really the idea is based off of one question that demands our consideration. If grace, as we've seen, is so wonderfully liberating, this reality then why is it that so many people willingly choose to reject it? Now, on the surface, one might immediately point to pride and the existence of religious moralism as the chief motivator behind legalism. And that would be true. And yet, I'm convinced the rejection and the resistance of grace it bubbles forth from a much deeper well than just pride. And it's a desire for fairness. Understand, justice. 
Justice is more than the act of being fair or just. Human justice can be defined as a moral rightness based on ethics, rationality, collective law, natural law, religion, equity, along with the punishment of said breach of ethics. Basically, justice is both the act of being fair, the judgment of those who aren't, and the administering of necessary reparations to relevel the playing field brought about by injustice. Keep in, the, keep in mind, the concept of justice and the necessity for judgment and our propensity and longing for fairness. This is an idea that transcends race, culture, ethnicity, even religion, and one that strikes deep within the core of the human spirit. As a matter of fact, studies have shown that the human desire for fairness is actually wired into our genetics. In 2008, a UCLA, a UCLA study of fairness and how it relates to the human brain, observed that, quote, fairness activated the exact same part of the brain that responds to food. Interesting. The study concluded that since reactions to fairness are now wired into the human brain, the notion of being treated fairly is so important to us because it satisfies a basic biological need. What's, what's interesting is that sociological exper experiments have shown that human beings will even forego personal gain in order to right a situation that has a perceived and intolerable measure of unfairness. This reality has been illustrated by an exercise known as the ultimatum game. Here's how the game works. Two people are seated across from each other with one of the two named the dictator, charged with the task of distributing, between he and the other person, a fixed amount of money. It's completely on the discretion of the dictator. He can go 100% none, 100% none, 10.90. However he wants to split it up, the dictator gets to make the choice unilaterally. But there's one catch. The recipient is then allowed to veto the proposed deal. And if the recipient does that, neither he nor the dictator get anything. That's how the game works. Now, more often than not, what this game reveals is that anytime the dictator divides the money in a way that is perceived by the recipient to be less than fair, the deal gets vetoed. Like in a sense, because the recipient feels they're being treated unfairly, they'll end up preferring to forgo any part of the pie to punish the dictator. Oh, you're gonna go 90-10? Yeah, that's $10 you didn't have. Yeah, but you get $90 you didn't have. I don't think that's fair. Veto. 60-40, well, okay, I, you know, that might be closer to fair. Like there's a negotiation, but if it's unfair, the recipient, even if he gets five, it's five more dollars than he had, but because it's unfair. I'll forgo a benefit to punish someone if I see this as being unfair. Though this propensity for fairness manifests itself in politics, 
and the formation of public policy, both domestically and geopolitically, our longing to be treated fairly is the foundation for a religious concept that today permeates our social landscape. And it is the idea of karma. Tyler Myers was your normal 19-year-old with an F-150 who had a habit, a bad habit, of going around town stealing stop signs. Norwalk, Ohio. Sadly, one night while driving home, Tyler was T-boned and killed by a semi-truck. What happened? Tyler blew through an intersection because someone had stolen the stop sign. One article I read on this story, it cited, quote, it was like God was playing a cosmic game of irony pool, and Myers was the eight ball. That's terrible. Karma. If you study it from a cultural perspective, it was introduced sometime in the late 60s by the beatnik generation of Greenwich Village. Yet today, the idea of karma, karmic justice, it's all over mainstream. American pop culture. You'll even find it referenced as an explanation for why certain things happen by newscasters. As one social commentator remarked, people have embraced karma because it helps explain why something good or bad happens. Like it was the whole premise behind the NBC hit show, My Name is Earl. Earl, whose life was a total disaster, begins forming a list of all the people he's got to make good to. His motto. Do good things and good things happen. Do bad things and bad things happen. According to the teachings of Buddha, karma states that actions bring upon oneself inevitable results, good or bad, either in this life or in our future incarnation. In other words, in the end, life is fair. Eventually, every single person will get what they deserve. Regardless of the moment, Good deeds are always rewarded and bad ones punished. And friend, this is what makes the cross such an offense and why it is that people struggle with the concept of grace. Think about it. Doesn't the cross completely contradict in every way the concept of karma? Jesus, the most sinless, perfect man to have ever lived, He did nothing to deserve the brutal nature of his death. It violates our sensibility for fairness. The idea of grace, that God would grant his favor indiscriminately and independently of human involvement, this ends up being resisted. Why? Because it doesn't come across as being all that equitable. People struggle with the notion that a person who's given their entire life to following Jesus and being a good person from even a young age can share in the same destiny with the mass murderer who makes a deathbed profession of faith in Jesus' work on the cross. That doesn't seem fair, does it? If we're honest this morning, even the legalist in us cringes at the thought of someone who's lived a life of sin someone who's lived a life of wickedness and rebellion, coming to Christ and immediately receiving identical status, the identical status you and I possess as being a son or a daughter of Jesus and co-heir of the, the Father's promises. 
This is why we go to great lengths to warp the biblical concept of sowing and reaping to our own sense of Christian karma. So we have some way to differentiate status and standing among the people of God. There's a truth that legalism and law does seem to be fair. And yet the doctrine of grace completely blows this conviction out of the water. Here is the truth this morning. While it's true, the fairness of grace is evident when one understands that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and that there is no fundamental difference between all people not named Jesus. Do you get those concepts? Grace is totally fair. It's us and him. But in a very practical sense, Grace isn't designed to be fair. To this point, Jesus tells an interesting story in Luke chapter 15. We know it as the story of the prodigal son. There are really two sons involved in the story. One of the sons wants his inheritance. He wants to leave his father's house early. And as you know, he takes his money. He goes and he parties hard. He blows it all. He lives for self. He lives for the moment. He lives for his flesh. And the results are hard. For he ends up penniless in the gutter. And it dawns on him that maybe he could go back to his father's house and be a servant. For the servants in his father's house are in better situation than even him. Well, we're told, let me read how the story ends that the prodigal son arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. Incredible humility. But the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry for my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found and they began to be merry now. His older son was in the field and he came and he drew near the house and he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. And because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But the older son was angry and would not go in. Therefore, his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, lo, these many years I've been serving you. I have never transgressed your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. The father said to him, son, you're always with me. And all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad for your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is now found. In his book, Prodigal God, Timothy Keller makes this observation. He writes, Neither son loved the father for himself. They both were using the father for their own self-centered ends 
rather than loving, enjoying, and serving him for his own sake. This means that you can rebel against God and be alienated from him, either by breaking his rules or by keeping all of them diligently. It's a shocking message. Careful obedience to God's law may serve as a strategy for rebelling against God. And yet, he closes with this observation. Jesus, the storyteller, deliberately leaves the elder brother in an alienated state. The bad son enters the father's feast, but the good son will not. The lover of prostitutes is saved, but the man of moral rectitude is still lost. We can almost hear the Pharisees gasp at the end of this story. It was a complete reversal of everything they had ever been taught. Ultimately, this is how we wrap it all up. You have to ask yourself when dealing with grace, this very important question. Do you want God to be fair with you? Do you want your interactions with God to be based on what you deserve. Do you? It's a foundational question you have to ask yourself. You see, the reality is that grace is such a revolutionary concept because it provides you a way to approach God that isn't based on his fairness, but instead, his goodness, his love. His grace. In conclusion, do you want God to be fair? Or would you prefer to bask and enjoy his incredible grace? Do you want to be in law, under law, or would you prefer to be an outlaw?